All right. Well, good to be with you tonight. Uh, welcome to Praxis. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, this church, Lighthouse, and it is a joy to be able to gather as a fellowship group here as a young single adults to not only sing of God's grace, but to study uh, God's grace in his word and to fellowship around it as we break off into small groups later. Um, and so as we converse over the things of God, may we be encouraged and stirred up, um, whether it's formally in small groups or even afterwards as we're enjoying snacks and the company of friends and uh, new faces. Um, as a ministry, uh, we've been studying the book of Romans. And tonight we're gonna continue our sermon uh, study in the book of Romans. So if you have your copy of God's word, we're just gonna get straight into it. We're gonna be in Romans 5, Romans chapter 5. And our passage tonight will be verses 1 to 5. I'll give you a second to turn there. And then I will go ahead and read our passage for us. And we will pray for the Lord's help and blessing upon our time. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. God, your love, even as we've just read, has been lavished upon us through the Holy Spirit. Father, that you are so for us, you have given us yourself. And as in the gift of the Holy Spirit, we've come to experience the, the depth and richness of the gospel. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, Lord, to convict us, Lord, to move us, to change us and transform us, that we might behold Christ and become more like him. That as we study the, the doctrine of justification by faith, it would not only be something that we intellectually understand, but Lord, it would be visceral. It would get down to the core of who we are, Lord, and we would rejoice. We would delight in what you've done in the sending of your son to redeem and rescue the lost, and that it would be our delight to know and follow Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to rehearse it in our own souls and to declare it to others who desperately need to hear the good news of Christ. And so use this occasion now, Lord, as a momentous one, by the staple of digesting your word that we be nourished, built up, strengthened and matured in the faith. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start in 1997. 1997, St. Louis, Missouri. Jonathan Irons was convicted 
for the burglary and shooting of Stanley Stotler. At the young age of 18, just 18, Jonathan was sentenced to prison for 50 years. A long and fitting punishment had it been the right one. Instead, Jonathan actually had a rock-solid alibi. Many friends and witnesses who could attest that he was with them at the very time of the shooting. And not only that, but there was no DNA, fingerprints, or physical evidence at the crime scene to link and implicate Jonathan. Other critical information was withheld, false evidence fabricated, and so sadly, as a result, Jonathan was wrongly incarcerated. 23 years later, Maya Moore, a professional athlete, a WNBA MVP, decided to walk away from the game at the height of her career to pursue another passion of her, criminal justice reform. And so she leveraged her platform to draw attention to this case, Jonathan's case. She worked closely with his lawyers to present the inconsistencies and get Jonathan's conviction overturned. And in 2020, Jonathan was finally acquitted. He was at last vindicated. And the correct verdict brought in many, many blessings. You see, it wasn't just that Jonathan was announced innocent in the courtroom, that the gavel was swung, that papers were processed. It's how his exoneration changed his life from there on forward. I mean, to state the obvious, he would no longer have to spend his days, months, years confined to a jail cell. He was released to go home. He would no longer be registered as a thief, a killer, a criminal. He was restored to society, a citizen in good standing. And what's more, this story has a fairy tale ending. Jonathan not only gained his freedom, he gained a wife. Jonathan Irons and Maya Moore got married some months after. Now, the moral of the story isn't, you know, get yourself wrongly in prison to hopefully find a spouse. But we see from this story, blessing upon blessing. And you can trace them all back to one source, to that pivotal moment when Jonathan was officially justified. The declaration of his new legal status had transformative effects, a number of boons to his life. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in our passage tonight. Back in Romans 4, he has done the heavy lifting of explaining the mechanics of our justification, how it is by faith. If we back up even further to chapters 1 to 3, we see why this was necessary that we are wrought in through and through, and there's nothing we can do. All of us as human beings are criminals, culpable before God. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is this. Sinners can be pardoned. 
We can be declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Not because we have been wrongly convicted, but because someone else has paid the price. As we left off in Romans 4, verse 25, Paul notes, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, so he was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. And this is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Now, you don't have to be intimidated by those big words. It actually breaks down pretty nicely. Penal, like penalty, the punishment we deserve for our sins. Substitutionary sounds, or it means exactly as it sounds, a substitute where someone else takes our place. Atonement, atonement, making amends to settle the score, to balance the account. Penal substitutionary atonement. Three words to condense and summarize how wretched rebels like you and me are justified before a holy God. That Jesus absorbs our punishment as our substitute to reconcile us to holy God. And this is why we're justified by faith. Faith is the beggar's hand, desperate and open to receive. Faith clings to Jesus. We appropriate his glorious work on the cross simply simply by believing. We turn from our sins and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the gavel comes down. God declares us righteous. And this verdict, you better believe, has transformative effects, manifold blessings. That's why Paul begins our passage with a therefore, connecting the dots. The apostle sets out to showcase the benefits of being justified by faith. Tonight, Paul features three. Three blessings of being justified by faith, and we'll handle them one by one. First, peace with God. Peace with God. Look again at verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what crosses your mind when you think of peace? Is it a white dove, ceasefire, a quiet afternoon? Is it a hand gesture like this, you know? Or if you're really cool, like this, right? But the peace Paul mentions here is more profound, more substantial. Notice it's not the peace of God, but it's peace with God which entails things were not always okay. That we were once at odds. And Paul has harped on this in the opening chapters. He impresses on us the gravity of the situation. We are depraved and God is angry. And there is no peace for the wicked, only enmity. Until Jesus arrives, until Jesus appears, In Christ, we are not only declared righteous by God, but we are also reconciled to God. You see, this peace is more than the removal of hostility, more than a transition from being in the negative to the neutral state. I mean, a truce between two countries doesn't necessarily mean that they like each other, right? 
They just agree not to send planes over to bomb the other side. But peace with God is holistic. It's comprehensive. It moves past the point of neutrality. It goes to the other side from foe to friend. That's why no one actually cares about keeping the peace with a total stranger. It doesn't or shouldn't bother us if some online troll or rando at the supermarket harbors bitterness towards us. We lose no sleep at night. We don't really know them and vice versa. But it's another matter, a whole separate issue when there's beef with a homie, right? With a close buddy. It consumes you. It affects your day. And so you labor, you put in the effort to talk it out, to resolve the conflict until it's all good, until there's no obstacle, nothing between you guys. Why? Because forgiveness and peace serve a greater purpose than just clearing the air. They do away with the problem so you can get to the person, so you can enjoy a relationship. Who cares about justification by faith? Who gives a rip about peace with God unless you want him? Praxis, the gospel, isn't primarily about fireproof insurance, but fellowship with the living God. Not merely escaping hell, but entering heaven and enjoying the one who resides there. And I know for some of you, these words feel like a far departure from how you would describe your relationship with God. Living, enjoyable, your walk feels stale, burdensome, And if you're honest, maybe even dead. But that's why this peace is objective. It's objective, not subjective. Paul is very specific here. He writes, through Jesus Christ, we have, we have peace with God. Not we feel peace with God. Feelings are not ultimate. We need something more dependable, more stable than the roller coaster of our emotions. Feelings are good and right as long as they follow, not lead. As long as they are attached and informed by truth, by the right things. You see, it's when our feelings aren't grounded in God's word that they fluctuate, that they run rampant and go haywire. That's when they are dangerous and unreliable. And we see it often in our lives, right? We, we feel bummed when plans don't work out because we believe God only loves us when he gives us exactly what, he, what we want. We feel too dirty or sullied by our sin to pray because we think his approval must be earned. We feel no peace with God because we base it on our works and not his. But what do the scriptures say? What does this passage say? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He is the solid rock, our sure and steady anchor. So bank yourself on him. That means when you're discouraged or your attitude doesn't reflect or line up with what the Bible teaches, 
here's an exhortation. My exhortation to you would be feed your feelings with fact. Arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to do battle with your fickle and sluggish soul. You know, a fire is not going to magically start without kindling. And facts are the necessary wood chips to set our hearts properly aflame. Feed your feelings with facts so they glow vibrant and healthy. And you can start here in the book of Romans. Many truths to feast on. Just review the past four chapters or read ahead to the very end. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, well, the prescription is the same. Feed your feelings with fact. Because according to the Bible, it says you have no peace with God. You should tremble. You should fear. But let the bad news guide you to the good. In your despair, search the scriptures until you are led to Jesus Christ. The salvation he freely offers, a justification by faith that establishes peace with God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but enter his rest. How? You repent and believe. Peace with God. That's the first blessing. The second blessing Paul highlights is we have access to grace. We have access to grace. Verse 2. Through him, speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also, here's an additional bonus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We'll stop there. These days, access is often a sign of power and privilege. Backstage passes to Kanye or Taylor Swift concerts, well, those are reserved for select few. Advanced movie screenings are sent only to the big shots in the industry. Even LA Times, LA Times has a paywall for their articles to rub it in your face. Our articles are exclusive content for those rich enough to afford $1 for their subscription. Access is limited when access is special. And yet, as Christians, we have lost and taken for granted the wonder of having access to God. That even we can gather on a Thursday night to worship Him is a privilege we have often squandered or diminished. As it has been said, the sun, the sun will burn your eyes out from a distance of 92 million miles. And do you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its maker? It might seem harsh, surely convicting, sobering. But I think it indicates that we need a renewed appreciation for this blessing. So a brief history lesson. Skim the Old Testament, and we see how access to God is restricted. When the people emerge out of Egypt, and God descends on Mount Sinai for the first time, do you remember what happens there? 
Thunder roars, lightning flashes, smoke covers the mountain as it trembles and quakes at the sheer presence of God. And Moses establishes a perimeter lest the people touch the mountain and die. The commotion of creation screams that God is not one to be trifled with. And the Israelites got the message. This is what's recorded in Exodus 20, 18 to 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And this aura, this ambiance and attitude permeates the Old Testament. This becomes the normal pattern. The tabernacle and temple, they bar the people from the presence of God. And into the Holy of Holies, where God's special presence dwelt, into that special room, only one person, the high priest, dare enter once a year to represent the entire nation before the Lord. And that's it. The people of God needed a mediator, someone to intercede, because direct access was denied. If that's not enough, just consider how these mediators, how the prophets of God reacted in his presence. When Moses himself encounters God, he falls down. Like dominoes, they all do. Isaiah falls down. Ezekiel falls down. Daniel falls down because the awesome majesty and holiness of God is enough to drop sinners dead. But here in verse 2, here in verse 2, Paul announces something that would have been unfathomable to any Old Testament saint that ought to cause us to be dumbfounded. Paul writes, we stand. We stand. We have access. We enter the throne of grace boldly, not by our own merits, but by faith. Beginning of verse 2, through him, on the credentials of another. You recall the curtain in the temple separating sinful man from holy God. After the death of Christ, it is torn from top to bottom to show that it's not something that's achievable by human beings, but top to bottom because it is a divine rendering. And the price of admission, the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith, we stand because he stands with us. By faith in our perfect mediator, the great high priest, we gain access into this grace. And it's interesting. Grace, not God. I find that curious. Seems like a small, subtle detail, but the apostle is nuanced for the sake of emphasis. To stress how it's all possible. Grace. Grace. That from justification forward, this is what we are marked by. 
Grace is the Christian's natural habitat. It's the realm in which we inhabit, the air we breathe, if you will. In fact, this verb, stand here, is in the perfect tense, signifying past action with continuing effects. We stand and continue to stand. As a fish lives in water, so the Christian lives in grace. And that is revolutionary. From law to grace, from driven out of the garden to welcomed again, the pendulum swings. How the tides have turned. One pastor insightfully comments, all the power that once stood in the service of God's anger against us now stands in the service of his grace towards us. So imagine it. The massive barriers to entry are converted into gentle yet strong hands to usher us in. The intense animus God has towards us is now replaced with intense affection for his own. This is a reversal of epic proportions. And the takeaway is actually very simple. Here's the application. Don't be the fool who forfeits this grace. Do not shut the door that God has opened. Draw near. Bear your heart to him in prayer. Commune with him in the word. Is that how you see your quiet times? That you get the privilege, the blessing of being in his presence. And so you read, so you pray, so you journal, so you delight in him. Finally, justification by faith grants us our last blessing for tonight. And if you're keeping track of time, don't worry, this is actually our longest one in case you think we're going to be done shortly. But our third blessing for tonight is we have the hope of glory. Hope of glory. So peace with God, access to grace, hope of glory. The second half of verse 2 reads, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So up to this point, Paul has put us on a timeline. We have examined through Christ peace with God in the past and access to grace in the present. The apostle now directs us to the future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope carries a different shade of meaning than we, what we often use in conversation. When we speak of hope, we use it to express what we want, what we desire, what we wish for. You know, I hope the Dodgers win the World Series. I hope I lose 10 pounds. I hope I have friends. These are just examples, not personal confessions. Um, but none of these hopes are guaranteed. I can hope for friends, but in actuality, I may be alone, sad, right? But the hope the apostle speaks of is certain. It's sure. Why? Because of the object of his hope, the glory of God. 
The glory of God is a loaded phrase, a major theme in the Bible. And sometimes hefty words are tough to wrap our minds around. What is it? What does it mean? I like how John Piper defines it. He says, The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. In other words, it's God's perfection. All his attributes, his godness, displayed and celebrated. And surely we experience some of this now as the redeemed, as his children. We can marvel at God's sovereignty as he pulls through and provides for our needs. We see God's faithfulness as he fulfills his promise to us to make us more like his son, putting off sin, growing in obedience. But I don't think I need to convince any of you that it's still incomplete. We don't experience the glory of God to its fullest extent. The consummation, you see, is in the future. The coming day when God makes all things new, including us, and we will be with him forever. Then, on that day, we will marvel with greater awe at how God has not only met every earthly need, but how he orchestrated all of human history towards this glorious culmination. We will see God's faithfulness with greater clarity as he vanquishes sin and we are perfected in the image of Christ. We will enjoy uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship with our God. It is sure to happen because this is his glory. And as we hope in his glory, we're empowered. The hope of God's glory provides us the roadmap to navigate through life's mountains and valleys since we know what's coming, since we know the end. We have strength for today because of bright hope tomorrow. Strength even for our suffering. Verse 3. More than that, so we rejoice in the future in the hope of the glory of God, but this future informs our now. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul gets very practical. The hope of the glory of God is actually acutely seen and experienced, not apart, but in, in our trials and tribulations. The present pain propels us to the future, future glory, to consider God, all that he is doing in us, through us, and around us. The apostle here is not charging us to rejoice in suffering in and of themselves. If that was the case, he wouldn't call them sufferings, but successes, comforts, something positive. No, instead, he's about to show us the sequence, like how a manufacturing line has various stages. So suffering is the first phase whenever God wants to produce something in us. And so we can rejoice in our sufferings because that is not final. We can rejoice in our suffering because it is not in vain. It is a signal that God is at work. Look at verse 3 again. So more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces 
I think we need to hear this because when it comes to our trials, many of us, our reflex is just to hunker down. We go into survival mode. We just want to make it through this hardship the same way we entered. But God doesn't settle for status quo. He uses suffering to send us down the path of sanctification, to prune us, to refine us. Which is why we can't miss that first word. We rejoice in our sufferings because we are informed. The apostle equips us with knowledge, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Look, examining your heart, seeking accountability, serving people in the church are all necessary. They're all good and godly aspirations. But can I humbly ask, do you know truth? Do you know truth? Do you have a theology robust enough to weather the storms of life? You see, what occurs on a Thursday night here at Praxis or in a Sunday morning sermon, and every time you open God's word throughout your week is no small affair. It is no trivial matter. It is absolutely essential. Be people of God's word because doctrine is not something you know. Doctrine is something you live. That your knowledge of God's purpose for suffering injects your backbone with confidence. And here Paul says, affliction Affliction is not for your harm. Affliction is actually God's tool to produce endurance in you. Let me illustrate. If after service you approached me and asked, Pastor Allen, how are you so fit? You have such big muscles. You can lift so many heavy things for such a long period of time. To which I would reply, Yes, thank you. That is all very true. Don't know why we're laughing, but I'll take it. But let's say I elaborated and said, well, the reason I'm so ripped is because I am on a steady diet of Cheetos, chocolate wafers, and sitting on the couch 24-7. That would not be the answer you were expecting, right? You're probably looking for my workout regimen. Why? Because we all know the basics. That physical strength and endurance is formed when muscles are stretched and strained, when they are torn and rebuilt, and the process goes over and over again. Otherwise, your muscles deteriorate. They droop, which is all you need to know to guess whether I work out or not. Well, God has designed our spiritual fitness to function in a similar way. Faith is like a muscle. In practice, where is God stretching you? What is he teaching you? Or have you resigned into being a slouch, out of shape? Look, if we refuse to exercise our faith, should we be surprised by spiritual atrophy? Could it be that our faith is flabby precisely because we haven't suffered well? We've squandered the workout. There is no secret or shortcut to a strong faith, a faith that endures. You know, some of you may want 
the maturity without the work, let me be the first to say that is impossible. It's impossible. You can't be a tried and true Christian without being a tested Christian. And this is what Paul focuses in on in this next word, character. So knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. More accurately, you could even translate it as proven character. Proven character. That over time, your endurance reveals that your faith is being molded. It's not a flash in a pan. It's firm. There is definition and depth to your faith. You own it. My big buddy, Charles Spurgeon, gave an illustration like this. It's a longer quote, but I think it illustrates well, so listen. He says, you look at the weather-beaten sailor, the man who is at home on the sea. He has a bronze face and mahogany-colored flesh. He looks as tough as heart of oak and as hardy as if he were made of iron. How did he come to this strength? By doing business in great waters. He could not have become a hardy sailor by tearing on shore. Now trials work in the saints, that spiritual hardiness which cannot be learned in ease. You may go to school forever, but you cannot learn endurance there. You may color your cheek with paint, but you cannot give it that ingrained brown which comes of stormy seas and howling winds. I love that. Spurgeon has a way with words. What is he talking about? He's talking about the clear difference between a cheap Brazilian blowout versus a lasting bronze that has been earned. It's the skill, composure, and expertise of a seasoned veteran in contrast to a wide-eyed novice. In character, character services in the face of adversity. And this is God's process for fashioning and forming his people. Anyone can believe when it costs them nothing. But when our faith is put to the fire, then we see what we're really made up of. We're forged to be more like Jesus. And when that happens, it produces hope. And hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame. You know, if a time traveler magically appeared to you and gave you the winning lotto numbers, you might be skeptical at first, right? You might think this guy's crazy, mentally unstable. You'd be slow to share this intel with others. You don't want to be laughed at and embarrassed if you're wrong. But let's say on the night of the lottery, the numbers match. And with each matching number, your doubt fades. The time traveler's prediction was true. And more than that, the time traveler proves he is who he says he is. Well, Paul brings us full circle here. God has given us his word. And when our lives match up, when we're refined from suffering to endurance to character, as we grow, so does our hope. We rejoice Hey, I'm the real deal. 
And more than that, God, God is the real deal. His word is true. He is who he says he is. From present trial to final triumph, he holds us fast and sees us through. And Paul ends with a preview of what's to come. The rest of verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The apostle is wild here. He's unrestrained. This is the language of plenty. Nothing reserved, right? Saturated, filled to the brim and spilling over. God is not stingy in his love. He pours it on. We could really label this as a fourth blessing. And it's such a big one, Paul will devote much of the next section, verses 6 to 11, towards immersing and drenching us in God's abundant love. But for now, this ties everything neatly. Love weaves and binds all these benefits together. We reap and rejoice at the blessing of justification by faith, a peace with God, access to grace, hope of glory. And it all tells of God's immeasurable love. Now, shortly in our closing pray set, I've asked Sean to lead us in a song by playing Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's a famous, popular hymn. And the whole hymn compels us to adore and worship God, who he is, what he's done. But there's one particular stanza I want to highlight. One particular stanza that captures and expresses what we've studied tonight, and it's the last one. And my hope is, as we sing it, our voices would rise as high as our hearts. So to prepare us, let me read the stanza for us. It says, Pardon for sin and a peace, there it is, a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence, his presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Let's pray. Father, it serves us well to reflect upon the cross, upon justification by faith, because it is there that all your attributes converge and are displayed that Christ is magnified and we marvel at your faithfulness. That pardon for sin is granted through the blood of Jesus Christ. That we are reconciled to you, no longer enemies, but friends. Friends through and through that we are brought into your presence. That we no longer have to worry about standing outside, but we're welcomed in as your children to rejoice and enjoy fellowship with you, to know you and to make you known. And God, this gives us hope today. Lord, as our gaze is fixed upon your faithfulness, your promises, your glory, it provides and offers much hope and strength, Lord, as we and go through difficult trials, knowing that if we have been purchased and ransomed by the blood of Christ, surely you will bring us home. Lord, I pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts and bear much fruit, good fruit, that displays the wonders of the cross 
and how much we delight in your son. We ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.